Hey there, Internet. How are you today? I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News at MTV, and this is The Stakes, the reluctantly political podcast that's being dragged by its ankles into the yawning abyss of the looming election. Won't you join us? As a warning, this episode covers potentially triggering topics, including sexual assault. This is mostly thanks to a tumbling trove of revelations of decades of women having accused the GOP presidential nominee of various forms of behavior ranging from inappropriate all the way up through full-on sexual assault. Donald Trump being Donald Trump has responded about how you thought he would by making this not about himself being innocent of these claims, though he has denied all allegations, by not pivoting attention towards women's issues, which now would be a great time as he's hemorrhaging white college-educated female voter support, but by making this about Bill Clinton. Because if there's one thing we know about America... When it's finally time for us to have a national conversation about sexual assault and consent, the first thing we want to do is immediately sideline the women who are directly affected by it. We're doing terrific. So today on the show, we're going to do our best to surface voices of those women. We will continue to do this on mtvnews.com and in coming episodes of The Stakes and... It might not make a dent. It might not make the slightest bit of difference to any one person. But if it helps us all to sleep a little bit better at night, knowing that we at least weren't... (sighs) You know where I'm going with this. Let's get to it. Earlier this month... President Obama signed into law the Sexual Assault Survivors Bill of Rights. Those rights include keeping rape kits preserved until the statute of limitations expires, informing survivors about what evidence has been found in their rape kits, and the requirement of written notice if the rape kit is going to be destroyed. Might seem all pretty basic, but since this law only applies to federal cases, millions of women still won't even have these basic protections until the states take this bill as well. And that is Amanda Nguyen's plan. She's the founder of RISE, which is a not-for-profit created to make this Sexual Assault Survivors Bill of Rights the law for all such cases, state, federal. Nguyen spoke with MTV Founders editor Julie Zeilinger about how her own experience after being assaulted prompted her to take action and fix this shit show. Congratulations are in order. President Obama signed the Sexual Assault Survivors Rights Act into law this month, an act that you and your organization RISE created. And you have spoken about how your 2013 sexual assault in Massachusetts prompted you to pursue this work. Can you describe this experience and how you ended up meeting with Senator Jean Shaheen to create this legislation? It came from a very personal place. When I was assaulted, I started trying to research what my rights were, and I found that across the United States, there were different states that had different rights in place, which literally means that justice depends on geography. And that flies in the face of a core American principle, equality under the law. So November 2014, 
we decided to write a bill of rights. Originally, it was for Massachusetts, which is where my case was and is, but then it grew to the United States Congress. And you're right, it was just signed into law last Friday. Yeah, that's amazing. And you as well as plenty of other survivors have spoken about how deeply broken the criminal justice system is in terms of achieving justice for survivors of assault. And I'd love to dig into what that has really meant for you in your own experience. So can you describe some of the most glaring flaws in the system that you encountered? I remember walking out of the hospital after I had my examination. And most people don't know how long a rape kit exam can be. It can last anywhere from three to seven hours. Mine was six hours. And I felt so alone. It was really just, you know, where, where, do, I, where do I go from here? And when I went to the hospital, they had given me a lot of pamphlets. And one of the pamphlets had said that, quote, at the end of six months, it will be destroyed, it referring to the rape kit, unless you file an extension request. But there's no information about how to file the extension request. So I started trying to figure out how do I do this. And I remember talking to a legal advocacy center about the process of prosecution, and they said that the process is extremely time-consuming, takes an average of two years, and that I need to be prepared for this to consume two years of my life. I'm always very hesitant in saying this, because reporting and pressing charges is such a personal decision for everybody out there. There's no right or wrong way that's just a very personal decision every survivor makes for him or herself. Uh, But for me, after that, I talked to the police, and the police told me that in Massachusetts, the statute of limitations allows me to report the incident any time in 15 years. And that means that I have this option to, at a point in time in my life when I'm ready, do revisit this. However, that's when this six-month destruction deadline really kicks into gear. So when it nears the six-month destruction deadline, it is quite re-traumatizing, and I try to find out information about how to preserve my kit, and I get conflicting information from different figures of authority. One police officer says that, don't worry, the kit will be stored in their evidence room indefinitely, but these pamphlets that I was given at at the hospital says that the kits are going to be destroyed at six months. And I find out that there's a rape crisis center that can help me. Um, and I eventually, through them, was able to contact someone at a state lab in Massachusetts. And I was able to extend the storage for the first time for six months. I requested a written confirmation of this, but they said they could not forward me the email confirmation, but that they would print it out. And I was living in D.C. at that time, so I had to fly to Massachusetts to get a printed confirmation of that email conversation. And every six months, 
this is a process that I go through. Six months later, I don't know whether I need to extend my kit again. And the police on my case says that my kit is at another police station, which in reality it isn't. And I call that police station and they confirm that they don't actually have my kit and that my case is not in their jurisdiction. So I need to go back to the police department A that I talked to. So I'm getting a stamp back, back and forth. Um, and I then turn to that email printout that I got from flying to Massachusetts and getting it. And I find in the email signature the contact of a lab technician who first extended my kit. And I email her, but I get an out-of-office reply. And so from that email reply, I find another lab technician while continually talking to multiple police officers to try to find out where and how to extend my kit. And so I call the second state lab technician from that bounce back out of office email. She says, contrary to what the police told me, they actually have my kit at the forensic lab that I do need to extend it again. And so I extend it. So this is the second time. Imagine trying to do this, trying to get the truth, the right answer, but also while there's an hourglass that is draining and every time, you know, that clock ticks forward, that one more minute closer to my justice, my evidence, to, to this kit possibly being destroyed. That is incredible, and I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Uh, I, th- I think it's so interesting. I think there's sort of a social awareness at this point that perhaps if a survivor pursues uh, a legal course of action, they'll be victim-blamed. Or, or we've heard about how police officers don't really interact well with survivors, but what you're describing is a whole other level of emotional and financial costs. Do you think people are aware of this? I think that our biggest enemy you can put that is ignorance. Mm-hmm. Honestly, we were able to pass this unanimously in both chambers of Congress in the most politicized Congress in history. Yeah, I actually, I wanted to ask you about that. You, you just mentioned you passed the bill unanimously on a recorded vote in both chambers of Congress, which is an incredibly polarized Congress. What was it like to have achieved that, especially at 24 years old? Um, so... We actually calculated, well, we didn't. We asked a data analytical firm called Quorum to calculate how many bills have passed this way. And in modern U.S. history, since 1989, only 0.016% of bills have passed both chambers of Congress unanimously on the record. We are obviously elated. There was an immense amount of political strategy that went behind this. And we flew in survivors from key stakeholder districts who are constituents and got them to talk to their member of Congress. When we were able to do that, it was so powerful to hear directly from survivors or from loved ones of survivors who told their harrowing stories of how these civil rights either could have changed their own situation or could have saved the lives of somebody that was raped and murdered in their family. Your experience is so heartening to hear about, but it also seems a little bit at odds with the current discourse around assault, especially from Republicans, most notably lately Donald Trump and some of his really disturbing comments about assault. Um, What do you think about that? It seems sort of at odds with this bill passing. Do you think this is the difference between (laughs) political rhetoric and action? 
um, we came in very thoroughly prepared with, you know, legal court cases, precedents, with economic regressions. I mean, we had, when we walked into senators' offices, a bill pre-made. <laughs> um, and everything they could ever need. And if they had any question about how this would economically impact their district, I mean, we were on it. Um, and I'm very grateful to this group of millennial volunteers who have been able to pull together such quality research. Uh, and I really hope, even in this very divisive political climate, that we can serve as a glimmer of light in this because if we're able to navigate this, and again, we were an all-volunteer, we are an all-volunteer team. I'm working on this full-time now, but we were able to do this in our spare time. We were able to make change for millions of people. That means somewhere out there, anyone who's listening to this right now, if you care about this issue, we need to take it to the states. You can be a part of this movement. And if you care about something else or whatever issue it is, you have the capacity to actually make change. I think that's an incredible message. Um, I would love to know what's next. I mean, I know these these laws, uh, the Bill of Rights, won't go into effect overnight, but what can people expect to see over time? Can you sort of take us through how this will unfold in, in the coming months and years? Our next steps are bringing it to the state because this bill, while immense and will help these 25 million people, the CDC statistic for rape survivors in the United States, it will, this federal bill will impact um, survivors in the military, survivors in Native American territories, survivors that have their cases adjudicated in the federal courts. What the federal bill really serves as is a model for states to then take this and introduce it, pass it in their own state houses, and implement it in their states. And so over the next couple of months, we will be traveling to states, working with local members in states to make sure that these rights are codified. And we can't do that without the support of people who are out there. And so to anyone who wants to be a part of the movement, please feel free to reach out to us on any of our social media or our website, that's us, and be a part of this movement because it is absolutely possible to create change. Well, that's great advice, and I'm sure a lot of people will come out and support you. And congratulations again. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Of course. Thank you for sharing the story. That was MTV Founders Editor Julie Zeilinger speaking with the founder of RISE, Amanda Nguyen. You can find more about the Survivors' Rights Bill at risenow.us. Workplace discrimination has been Eleanor Holmes Norton's fight since before the Carter administration. In 1970, Norton was already an established civil rights lawyer when she filed a class action gender discrimination lawsuit on behalf of the women of Newsweek magazine. In 1977, she was the first woman appointed to the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. 
And now she's in her 13th term in Congress as delegate for the District of Columbia, where she's still fighting to end workplace discrimination with a new bill that would make it illegal for a prospective employer to ask for your salary history before making a job offer. Norton will introduce the bill in the next Congress, and she spoke with our own Jamie Fuller about how banishing salary history could help close the wage gap. I wanted to start uh, a bit broader. When you became the first woman to be appointed to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission back in 1977, there were 130,000 cases in the backlog to deal with, which probably means you've seen every possible complaint someone could have about their employer. And to speak (laughs) generally, do you think fighting, how do you think fighting for workers' rights has changed since the 70s? The 70s was the the kind of heyday of uh, anti-discrimination law because for the first time uh, in more than 100 years, we actually had federal law that says you can't discriminate against people and women and minorities were at the top of that list. Uh, And of course, when I became the chair, uh, there had been such enthusiasm for the new law that uh, the commission was overwhelmed with complaints. So the irony is that a constitutional and civil rights lawyer had to convert herself to a management lawyer to get rid of the backlog so that the statute would become effective. And I I said, you know, there's a tombstone at all uh, and me relating to the EOC. I hope it doesn't say she got rid of the backlog, (laughs) Uh, although I'm very proud of that. I hope it says, you know, she, uh, for example, uh, developed the sexual harassment guidelines, which were a real breakthrough at a time when sexual harassment was rampant in the workplace. Of course, we've seen women come forward in huge numbers now. Uh, blacks were already well-educated to know about prejudice, uh, but women were far less. Uh, I remember when I first became chair of, the equal, uh, chair of the New York City Commission on Human Rights, I literally had to go into women's organizations and say, why aren't you filing complaints? Is everything really hunky-dory? You don't have that problem anymore. Mm-hmm. And salary histories uh, aren't a thing that seem to get mentioned very often when people talk about wage inequality. Do you think that most people applying for jobs are even thinking about their salary history as an avenue for bias? I think they are not, and they should be. So I want you to know that this is very different, I believe, from the kind of discrimination that typically we find in the workplace where there is either deliberate discrimination or discrimination based on status, you're a man or a woman, you're black or you're white. I think this is a kind of discrimination that uh, uh, assumes that you ought to pay somebody what they're worth and that a good way to tell what they're worth is what they've been making wrong because What you find is that what they've been making is often related to their status, to their color, uh, to their sex, and there begins a lifelong cycle where because you begin at a rate lower than your worth based on your race or your ethnicity or your gender, you carry that for the rest of your life because the employer asks, what was your salary? at your last job. Uh, A lot of this is what we call implicit bias, uh, that they're used to assumptions about males in the workplace. 
some of that is being eroded as women become more aggressive. But I have to say, women are not aggressive enough because this wage gap continues at 79 cents. And there was a report from the Institute of Women's Policy Research this summer that showed that uh, things are even worse for women of color who saw their wages drop by about 5% between 2004 and 2014. So there's a lot of ground that needs to be made up. This is very troubling. Uh, Of course, uh, we've come out of the Great Recession, and income inequality is the issue of the day. But the notion of dropping should be unthinkable. And they've dropped for all women, including white women, but they have massively dropped for women of color. Um, I think the only women they didn't drop for, uh, and they went up only 1%, were Asian and Pacific Islander women. But for black women and Hispanic women and Native American women, they dropped in the range of 4 to 5%. I think that has a lot to do with the organization of, of work in America today. Women are still crowded into... Uh, the lowest paying service occupations, and look what has happened to those occupations. Uh, these, this is a very tough uh, work in, environment, and they are encountering all kinds of problems. For example, hours of work where you can be uh, called in uh, or made to come in at, uh, at off hours uh, at the employer's will. Uh, so th- there's, there's huge new unfairness uh, that has beset women and minorities in the workplace that we weren't even focused on when these laws were originally passed. And why did you decide to tackle this specific issue uh, right now? Were you partly inspired by Massachusetts? Yes, I was inspired by Massachusetts. It's certainly not second nature to me now. Let me tell you just how much it's not second nature. When it comes to working in the House of Representatives, there really is a limit on what you can pay people. Mm -hmm. And you know what that limit is. So here am I, a former chair of the EOC, and I asked people what their salaries were. I believe I wasn't asking asking that in order to make sure they didn't earn enough. In fact, I know why I was asking them. We have only a certain budget, and very often people will apply for a job, and they've been making twice what the job uh, pays. So you just want to say right at the beginning, I, I just want you to know that this, we, we, this, does not, this job does not pay that. Well, think about it. Why shouldn't I just say that at the beginning mm-hmm. without asking them what they have been earning, particularly for young people? Let's just take millennials. They will be earning less than they're worth today because of income inequality. Should they carry the fact that they got out of college right after the Great Recession with them to the end of their working days? Because somebody asked you, essentially, what were you earning at the uh, end of the recession when the, in- when, the, when the economy was just beginning to go up? And you're going to have to say, essentially, a figure that is less than what it would have been before 2008 when the Great Recession set in. Yeah, and because these uh, young workers have known nothing else, they're not even going to think that they're facing any type of discrimination or that there's a world in which they could be making more money. And so you have Massachusetts, which passed the uh, first law like this back in August, and New York City and D.C. have both floated similar legislation, too. 
But if a federal law doesn't pass, you're going to have these richer states or more progressive cities passing these kinds of laws, and you're going to leave minorities or women in the poorest states without this layer of protection. Well, that's not how I would put it. This is how the the, uh, equal employment laws have always worked. The first laws were passed by the most progressive states, Not, not the United States of America, not the Congress of the United States. Uh, when I was chair of the New York City Commission on Human Rights, New York State had such a law, Michigan had such a law, the great uh, eastern states had such a law, some from the Midwest, but most states had no such a law. So you don't want to keep the states from moving ahead with the most progressive notions of how to treat people, because the federal government always has to catch up. It's very hard to put against that federal legislation. Uh, it's much easier for the states to take the leadership and then for, for to shame us, essentially, into doing the right thing at the national level. You've said before in interviews that income disparity is the great issue of our time. And besides uh, trying to ban employers from talking about salary histories, what are other fixes that are, you think are the most important to tackle right now? At, at the moment, um, uh, the 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 great the great uh, disparities are in are between and among certain occupations. Uh, another of my bills for comparable worth uh, tries to deal with the fact that we're still filing mem- women into largely women's occupations. These are some of the most important occupations in any society: nursing, uh, teaching, uh, and the like. So we have to ask ourselves. Why, if these professions are so eminently important, do they pay so little? Uh, And thus, this bill, and this is a bill so progressive that I file it every year without getting it out, essentially says that a woman should be paid wages comparable to that of a man instead of only equal. Uh, This is more difficult, but I must say to you that unions have been able to negotiate comparable worth contracts so that men and women who work in different jobs are paid more equally. Well, thanks for taking the time today, Congresswoman. It was my pleasure. That was Eleanor Holmes Norton, delegate in Congress for the District of Columbia, speaking with MTV politics writer Jamie Fuller. If you've ever encountered a presidential candidate whose beliefs dovetailed perfectly with your own, you are, yourself, a pretty rare bird. Most of us have to look at column A, look at column B, and make the best of two not-super-great choices for ourselves. Third parties rarely have a chance to make a dent in a presidential election, and next month's election is so contested, so tightly contested in so many places, that third-party candidates could make a serious dent in more than one state. So what's a socially conscious socialist to do? It turns out, depends on what kind of state you live in. Our resident poet and politics writer, Marcus Ellsworth, talked to socialist activist Sindolo Demina about how best to use your vote if you don't fully support either candidate, but still want to make a difference in policy. 
I'm Marcus Ellsworth with MTV News, and I'm here speaking with Sindolo Demina. And we're going to talk about a perspective that many members of our audience might not be familiar with. The concept of socialists organizing to stop Trump through a variety of strategies, which include possibly voting for Hillary Clinton. Just to be clear, what is what is what is social organizing look like in, in America right now as far as electoral politics? Well, I mean, I think it's a really exciting moment for socialist organizing in the United States. One, I think a lot of people are deeply questioning and ready to fight for a different way of organizing politics and a different way of uh, organizing the economy. So I think both of those things create a powerful opportunity for folks with socialist politics to be out there and saying, actually, there is a way to organize these things differently. That's bringing forward the question of public ownership of our economy and uh, actually deep democracy. Okay, well, you know, and it's it's pretty apparent there's not really a socialist candidate on the ballot. Not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of strong push behind Bernie, uh, which was the closest thing to a, to a socialist candidate folks, you know, have ever seen get that far. Yeah. So so what's the options then? If you, if you, if you want to use your vote as a socialist, how do you see the most effective way of doing that? Well, that depends on where you live. Mm-hmm. In states like red states, for example... Um, you said you're in L.A., but I think I heard uh, you're connected with folks in Tennessee. I'm, I'm actually uh, normally based out of Chattanooga, so yeah, that's where I'm at home is. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Exactly. In a state like Tennessee, where it's really clear that Hillary Clinton is not going to win Tennessee, I don't actually think the important work of socialists in that state is about what they do with their vote. Mm-hmm. I think that in a state like Tennessee... The most important work that folks can be doing is actually organizing direct action against Trump and his politics, but more than just Trump, against the whole new Confederate social movement that's behind him and that rules states like Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners, um, can you clarify the, the, new, the concept of the new Confederacy a little bit? Yeah. You know, we live in a country that's broken up into states. And breaking up the country into states was a key strategy since the origins of this country for the most backwards reactionary politicians and ruling class folks. And so state rights and all that other kind of stuff were mechanisms for slave owners and later on for those who were promoting Jim Crow or those who wanted to uh, occupy the land of Mexican people, right? State Mm -hmm. rights were the way that they actually moved that forward. When I talk about a new confederacy, I'm talking about a resurgence of a very old white supremacist strategy that combines white supremacy, elite corporations, and control of electoral power that's based on disenfranchisement. All of those pieces come together in what we talk about, at least in Freedom Road, as the new confederacy. Okay, so so there, like in the red states where this is the most active, the new Confederacy, mm-hmm. your strategy there, your, your advice is, rather than trying to swing the electoral vote, going after policies and and actual, uh, the systems that are at work already. Mm-hmm. Then what about in blue states, where it's, uh, it's a strong Democratic hold, where like we know, for example, in November, it's highly likely Hillary's going to take those states. How do folks yep. work there? So in blue states, I kind of think it really depends about what organizations you're connected to and what bases you're connected to. I think the key thing, the key tactic, is building alliances between labor, white progressives, 
and people of color communities, but actually that coalition, that alliance in blue states is actually the most critical thing that needs to happen. So strengthening that, that, that push. That, yeah. That's already there. Strengthening that push. And why is mobilizing communities of color so integral to that, to that vision? Yeah. I mean, so there's a list of reasons for me. One at the top, black people in this country are the most progressive constituency in the country. Across the board, we're the most progressive constituency. We're the bedrock for progressive social change in the United States. Mm-hmm. And if you want to look for whose experience pushes them in the direction of a radical transformation of this society, at the center to me is black folks. And I think we see this in the kind of social movements that black people have historically spearheaded. But when we move, we don't just move ourselves. When black people get into motion in large numbers, uh, in direct confrontations with the system, actually all kinds of people swing into motion. And I think we're seeing that now. I think we saw it with the black freedom movement. Mm -hmm. But I don't think other people are waiting for black folks to go into action. When you think about uh, the Dreamers movement and the way that those young people uh, who are undocumented were willing to directly confront the system unafraid, they shook the, the foundations of this country. And I think it's really, really important that they took on the anti-immigrant movement at a moment where it was perhaps at its strongest, right? And so I think when we think about people of color in this country, we're talking about folks who are willing to make deep and direct confrontations of the most egregious inequalities and to call for deep transformation of the country and to demand that everyone in the country actually take sides for what they stand for. And the last thing that I'll say (laughs) is I think that the Bernie Sanders campaign also shows us why we have to put people of color at the center. Mm -hmm. That it is impossible, it is impossible to defeat the corporate elite in this country without an alliance with people of color. There is a section of progressive white people in this country, but they are not big enough to win. That there are progressive people of color in this country. Alone, they are not big enough to win. That it actually takes a combination of those two things to actually outweigh the forces of white supremacy and corporate capitalism. That those are the two forces that together could actually win. By themselves, neither can win. It's going to take everyone or no one, right? Well, I don't think it's going to take everybody. I think there's white (laughs) supremacists who are never going to join our side. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, then that leaves us with those purple states, those battleground states. And this year, there's polling showing that we may have more battleground states than normal. What about in those states that could go either way? Yep. That's the kind of state I live in. I live in North Carolina. And I think that in North Carolina, mobilizing votes for Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump, again, prioritizing working with organizations that are people of color and working class led is a critical tactic. Mm-hmm. That's not an endorsement of everything Hillary stands for, though, to be clear, right? Oh, not at all. Not okay. at all. Elections are not expressions of my personal sentiment. That's a very liberal, hard to be old school about it, a very bourgeois way of thinking about <laughs> elections, is then they're like this exercise of self-expression. Mm-hmm. To me, elections are battlegrounds, not stages for self-expression. And so voting for Hillary Clinton in a purple state is not about me being like, I like her. She's great. She does wonderful things. I think I have tons of critiques of Hillary Clinton, and I don't think voting for her tactically is an endorsement of her politics or of her values. 
All right. So for you, the vote is is more rooted in in your principles to to avoid a worse alternative. Then, yeah. I mean, I think one aspect of it is avoiding a worse alternative. That I think Donald Trump would be tremendously awful. I think it would be tremendously destructive. But more important than any of the individual candidates is the social bases and the social movements that are behind them. Mm-hmm. There's a whole right-wing social movement behind Donald Trump that if it was elected, I think it brings together the most dangerous reactionary forces in the country. And then I think voting for Hillary Clinton in purple states isn't just about avoiding a worse alternative. It's also about how do we create conditions to bring together the forces in this country who have to come together. To me, I don't think revolution can happen in this country. I don't think socialism is possible in this country without bringing together the movements of people of color and the movements of organized working people. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that this election offers the opportunity to do is that relationship building, is that alliance building between those different forces and the conversations that it allows us to have with people of color and with working families, I think it's tremendous. Well, thank you so much for speaking with with us today, Sindolo. Yeah, definitely. I really appreciate being asked on. Thanks for the work you're doing. That was Marcus Ellsworth of MTV News speaking with socialist activist Sindolo Demina. Finally, in light of a growing cascade of revelations from even more women accusing Donald Trump of all manner of nefarious behaviors, MTV News correspondent Meredith Graves has an op-ed for us about how Trump isn't even really a politician. Grab them by the pussy, said the guy who's trying to become the leader of the free world. I moved on her like a bitch said the guy who's had beauty pageant contestants, employees, housekeepers, ex-wives, reporters, fellow politicians, young teenagers, and children come out against him with allegations of physical and sexual assault. It's just words, said the guy whose sexually charged comments about his own daughter have been lascivious enough to make incest into a hot political topic. It was locker room talk, said the guy who had no problem calling sexual shotgun on a 10-year-old, while his own daughter was only 11. He was way outside of any locker room then. Women say he's groped them like an octopus, forcibly kissed them, grabbed their breasts, and put his hand up their skirt on airplanes, and then threatened them with legal action were any of this to come out. He's also threatened the New York Times and other publications. He has a multi-million dollar bounty out on anyone who leaks behind-the-scenes audio from his reality show, and has even claimed that he'll put his opponents in prison. Now, most conservative politicians in the United States express the same sentiments about women and sexuality, albeit in slightly different language most of the time. But by now, we all have the sense they hold their positions as firmly as they do to secure their appeal with the public, not because they actually believe that shit. Ted Cruz, who wears dumpy, shitty clothes to cosplay as Joe Sixpack while breeding with a Goldman Sachs lizard. And Gary Johnson, the libertarian presidential nominee who, despite being fundamentally pro-choice, believes in overturning Roe v. Wade. Those are conservative politicians. Politicians. Operative word. People who work in politics, who have studied policy, 
who understand global issues, who know how international law works, who have a vested interest in using government to make the world a better place, whatever that may mean to them, and who can effectively manipulate the voting public accordingly, politicians. Donald Trump is not a conservative politician or any sort of politician. He is a reality TV star, builder of buildings, hawker of meat. He is the screamingly, embarrassingly, horrifyingly perfect example of what conservative politics have done to our country, meaning he's just like us. Seriously, walk up to the next five people you see and ask them to explain the Electoral College or anything about how voting actually works. Fuck, while you're at it, ask them what their plan would be to defeat ISIS. They won't have an answer. Trump doesn't either. Which is too bad, because no matter what we say, what we really want is a superhuman president. We want a president with decades of experience at all levels of government, who has conversed with foreign leaders somewhere besides the back of a golf cart, who acknowledges the basic human rights of both the innocent and guilty. We want a president who knows what's going on in Aleppo, who can end the war in the Middle East and close Guantanamo, who can get clean water to Flint, Michigan, and aid to Baton Rouge, who will stop cops from killing innocent children, who will stop ISIS from committing acts of terrorism, and who will hopefully hold sexual predators accountable. And all we'll get if we elect Donald Trump is a president whose actions are so selfish and foul they excuse our own. We'll get a man willing to lie, cheat, steal, and rape his way into power. And that's the thing about American conservative performativity, ever since 9-11 reminded us that living in constant fear of death isn't just for foreigners. Our need for a candidate to assure us that we're still the toughest, still America, has made us forget that we can't actually survive a president who's a pathological narcissist just like us. Thank you for being with us on this journey, Internet. That was Meredith Graves in New York. I'm Holly Anderson in Los Angeles, and this has been The Stakes. We'll be back at you early again next week, on Wednesday night after the final presidential debate, with another installment of Stakes After Dark. Until then, try not to look directly into the hellmouth and take care of each other out there. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.